listeners, welcome to another episode of the Unearthed Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan F. Pamolu, and today we'll be talking to Daniel Masenga Grant about the environment, politics, and where they intersect. This topic was something that's been on my mind throughout the year. Of course, it's been a massive year for so many things, but I sometimes wonder, I feel like almost in some ways I've managed to forget a little bit that there's the climate, climate crisis going on. There's just so much happening, but... Um, I thought it'd be brilliant to talk to Daniel, who is both a politics enthusiast, but also an environmental science graduate and also the owner and founder of DMG Environment Consultancy Firm. And so he's very well placed to chat through where these two fields meet, what governments are doing or not doing to help the climate crisis, some of the background as to how we've got where we are, and also just to look at what we can be doing as individuals as a community and also as a society at large about um, our roles in the environmental crisis and so without further ado the interview hello hello Welcome to the Unearthed podcast, where I, your host, Nathan Epimola, will be telling and listening to different stories in the hope that we can all start to see each other as more in, the, in more is the same in God's eyes than different in our own. This show's guest is Daniel Matenga Grant. Daniel is the founder and owner of environmental consultancy, DMG Environmental Consultancy, and he is also a very big politics enthusiast. I don't think I can call it a podcast on Earth without hearing about what happens on Earth. I know it seems like such a long time ago, but yes, it was still 2020 when we saw massive fires across Australia, the Amazon and California, and that's just the hotter places in the Arctic cap. We are seeing, in addition to melting ice sheets, we're seeing the probing of ships from multiple countries trying to explore oil and gas deposits. And, you know, we've even got places like Los Angeles, which is typically being seen as one of the rubbish capitals of the world. So you could, and this is just 2020. So I thought it would be great to bring Daniel on have a chat about the environment, about politics, how they link, and then how that kind of feeds down back to ourselves at individual level or collective level and, you know, see how we really start trying to tackle some of the issues we see in front of us. And of course, metaphorically, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm not saying that was funny. I just said I was going to say it. Anyway, as us for today, Daniel and I will discuss this. Daniel, good to see you or hear you should be say. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good today. Looking forward to talking to you about all of this. Good, I'm excited too. So just to talk to us, you are an environmental science graduate and now also an environmental consultant, if I've got this right. Explain to us a little, what got you into environmental studies and tell us how you decided consultancy was the way to go career-wise. Yes, so it it started as as it often does and with a love of the natural world since childhood. Um, I kind of grew up in the countryside um, and me and my brothers would we'd spend hours outside running around in the fields and the woods and, and I just <laughs> I love being around nature um, and then on top of that I, I often used to go on long hikes and we'd you know, go camping for for several nights and just explore the wild places with with the scouts or, or some friends and um, so it's, mm-hmm. it stemmed from there um, and at school I was I was really good at biology so that seemed like the, the path to go to follow into it's university. Yep. So I studied um, biology undergraduate and then uh, moved to Glasgow and completed a master's in energy and environmental management. So the reason that I wanted to study biology was to get uh, an in-depth knowledge of the natural world. And the mm. part that I was most interested in was the interaction between 
different trophic levels, so between animals and plants and between them and the environment itself. Then kind of moving to um, environmental management, for me that was understanding our interaction with the environment. So how do we build the roads or the buildings that we want? How do we produce the energy that we use? How do we grow the food that we need without degrading the environment? So that was kind of my studies. Yeah, um, yeah I did my dissertation on um, assessing the environmental impact of decommissioning wind farms, because in Scotland and, and many parts of the world, wind energy is, is now the cheapest way to produce electricity. Yeah, yeah, we're big fruit here. Yeah, you could like, I remember I grew up in South Lanarkshire and just as I grew up, the whole horizon was gradually dotted with wind turbines. Yeah, because Whitley, Whitley wind farm is out that way. I think mm -hmm. I studied this one, it's the biggest or second largest in Europe, possibly that wind farm. I don't know about Europe anymore, but um, yeah, it's the biggest in the UK, definitely. Mm -hmm. So that's an airshore. And then the second biggest is um, Clyde, which is in South Lanarkshire as well. So we're, we're doing good in this area. Oh, we've got something. Yeah. Um, so then how about consultancy? What got you into that? Yes, yeah, so after um, after graduating, I just was applying for, for any job that was related <laughs> to and benefited the environment in some way. Um, I was throwing a bit of a curveball, but um, I wouldn't change what happened there. So I ended up being the, the first employee of a company that had big plans to uh, design, engineer and manufacture the first mass market hydrogen power truck or lorry. Wow. So hydrogen is a zero emissions fuel. So the only thing that comes out of the vehicle itself is water. And by a process called electrolysis, you can make hydrogen using green electricity, um, like wind or solar. Yeah. Um, and you make electricity and water from that. So that means we could run all these vehicles with zero harmful emissions, except for the effort it takes to make them. And I could, I could really see the environmental benefit if we pulled it off. So I went for it, I put my all into it. And so in a couple of years, we went from three guys in a tiny office to <laughs> a company of almost 30 people. And oh, wow. we'd, um, we'd almost completed our, our prototype for the second product, which was a hydrogen powered van. Um, we won several awards for innovation and we were starting to, to really engage with some big companies to get our vehicles on the roads and start making a, like a nationwide hydrogen refueling network. Mm. But in the last year, the funding with, with Brexit and, and so on, the funding just wasn't quite there. So it, it ground to a bit of a halt. However, a couple of months before that, I'd had an idea for a business. So finding myself free of a job <laughs> um, and... Um, there was also a small grant competition opening up at the same time for an entrepreneurial idea um, that helped um, kind of an area of social justice, which the climate is part of that. So I just really went for it. Um, from my university studies, I had all this environmental knowledge. And then from my time in the hydrogen industry, I'd gained a lot of business knowledge and I'd worked mm -hmm. with lots of different types of companies. So my idea was to, to combine these two and to yeah. offer sustainable solutions to companies that reduce their climate impacts. So yeah, covering business efficiency, staff engagement, because more and more people want to work for a company that's gonna benefit the world. Yeah, of course. Access to more customers that are climate conscious, um, keeping within government regulations and, and trying to get government grants as well as they push companies to be more environmental. Mm. So. That's DMG Environmental Consultancy. That's what we do. We've been open for just over a year now, which is great because we, 
we beat that statistic about small businesses failing in the first yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mentioned that too. It's like seventy percent of all businesses fail in the first year. I'm like, that's encouraging. <laughs> so it's definitely feel- not been a normal year as well. So yeah, absolutely. Very, very that's a great achievement. Being able to keep going, um, and being able to work with with some clients over lockdown, um, and and do actually doing some some work with my my old uh, work that I used to do with the hydrogen commercial vehicle company. Mm. Um, so we're doing okay. That's cool. That's really cool. I I have a one thought, just hearing because obviously for you this is that your business your consultancy is like the pinnacle and I say pinnacle loosely because I imagine you've got plenty of places to take it and you'll only go higher from here but it started from your childhood and growing up in a rural area and I guess your playground was the fields were the hills and I just guess that is is quite interesting to hear because by contrast I also grew up in South Lanarkshire but I grew up in Hamilton which is far more urban and so like my my idea of being out with friends is like yeah in like a residential street playing football or something like that, trying not to break someone's unassuming window. So I guess the, there's what I'm trying to get at is despite the sort of nature nurture agreement, dis- disagreement discussion that people have quite consistently when it comes to things like this, it's just interesting to think that your whole sort of university experience, your interests generally at school um, and now your career and in some small part at least could be attributed to your upbringing and just nature being where you grew up and nurture being how you then um, were taught to hone that and enjoy that, that skill set and that environment. I just find that interesting because I I personally like, I like being outdoors. I like the outdoors, but I, I, like, the, I like the outdoors as long as when I want to, I can feel indoors again. So I, for instance, and I, I always say this to some people and they're shocked that I've never been camping, for instance. Um, and it's kind of like, well, and my friends always make fun of me because like my idea of camping to them is like far closer to glamping. Or I'm just kind of, my, my response is kind of camping. I mean, I say sounds nice. I don't know if the people I know just aren't particularly great at doing camping things or you're part of the scouts. So I assume that's not you. But, you know, stories of people setting up tents poorly and then blowing away in the middle of the night or they set, they set up too close to a river and they wake up essentially flooded. But there was one, it's not funny, but there was one um, camping trips and friends went on where one of them caught very, very mild hypothermia because of how they'd set up. That was only in St Andrews. So you, I, feel like, I feel like there's a fair case for going, I like nature, but then when when I'm good and when I've you know had my bit of nature, I'm going to go to a cabin and sleep in a bed and it will yeah. be warm and I'll wake up and I'll go back outside. But no, I just I just find that really interesting, the sort of the difference in upbringing there. But of course, so you now consult companies and individuals on environmental policies. So you must know quite a lot about government policy, individual choices, how that intertwines and interrelates and affects things like climate change. So I guess from where you stand Obviously, the world is moving quicker than ever before. So, say maybe the last ten years or so, how would you say that the pol- politics and environment, maybe of Britain or just globally, if if you know to that extent, how that has changed or intertwined recently? Yeah. So, obviously, my my knowledge of politics is mostly Britain because mm-hmm. I, I live here and I, I actually get to take part in the process of British politics, I suppose. Um, and then just 
suppose it's quite quite you'd say Western centric. Mm -hmm. um, so political systems that are similar to ours, I've got quite a good grasp of. But cool. there'll be some countries that are, are totally different and I don't know very much about them. Um but yeah, politics and the environment have they're so entwined now. Um, and there are there's so many nuances to it as well. Of course. I think I think at the base of it, the problem with climate change, we have a problem with climate change uh, because of capitalism. Right. Okay. So the idea that money makes the world go round. Um, so capitalism, as we practice it today, says that a tree is worth more when it's cut down and made into something than when yeah. it's standing in a forest and producing oxygen for us to breathe. Yeah. Uh, it also says, capitalism says, that a whale is worth more dead than it is in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Capitalism says, I would rather dig up and sell this oil now than worry about my children getting enough food when climate change has, has changed so much that the agriculture is nearly causing, impossible. Causing yearly droughts and famines. Exactly. So before I kind of go any further or get into like our current government's policy or mm -hmm. things that we could do as individuals, I'd like to say one thing. Um, and anyone who's listening, please try and keep this in mind throughout, throughout <laughs> the whole of this podcast. Um, so just 20 companies are responsible for a third of all carbon emissions. And 17 of those are fossil fuel energy companies. Mm. And then 100 companies, so those 20 companies plus, plus the 80, 80 more, most polluting. Um, so 100 companies are responsible for 71% of all greenhouse gas emissions over the last 30 years. Right. So that's... can individuals make a difference? Yeah, of course they can. Lots of individuals doing the same actions lead to big change. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do matters. But when it comes to climate change, don't let the big companies make you feel bad for not doing enough when they're the major culprits. It's just something to, to keep in mind throughout all of this. Okay. I guess I've got, I've got one thought for you because I've, I've heard that stat brought up before and mm -hmm. I guess, what, what would you say to people who rightly or wrongly will say, okay, well, that's, that doesn't sound good, of course, like we want to scrutinise what these 20 or 100 companies are doing, but I guess, what would you say to people that also, on the other side, I guess, maybe of capitalism or consumerism more so, where they say, well, so if you take, I don't know, cobalt mining, co cobalt mining in the DRC, for instance, yeah. or rubber from the DRC, the DRC have lots of minerals and materials, so if you think of some of the environmental, uh, I guess, pollution or disruption, for lack of a better word, that's happened there, but obviously if we take cobalt, cobalt's one of the big components and materials that go into things like our mobile phones and our laptops and electronics, consumer goods. So what would you say to people that say that, you know, despite those stats that you mentioned, and of course that doesn't sound good when you hear it in this context of, oh gosh, that's like, there's a lot of, damage being done by supposedly few companies, but then we buy things from those companies. So I guess, yeah. how do you square that off? Yeah, so companies are controlled by two things. They're controlled by um, government regulations, which allow them to operate in the countries that those governments rule. Yep. And they are controlled by um, money and who buys their products, who consumes. So. Mm. Um, for example, I, I don't have a smartphone. I have a, an old, an old yep. dumb phone, as you could say. <laughs> um, partly because of my own personal reasons, um, but 
one of those is um, very rough materials and not needing to to buy that new phone. And, mm-hmm. But that's a choice I make, and it does impact my life in in our modern society at different points. Yep. Um, I think what you said about like cobalt mining. Um, another thing is lithium. Lithium is a rare earth material. Um, mm. Lithium ion is one batteries, of the, yeah. the most popular types of batteries for electric vehicles, for almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we're not, it's great that environmentalists are are very, um, very caring. Like a lot of the reason why you would be an environmentalist is because you care about the earth, you care about the impact climate change is going to have on people and ecosystems. So we really need to have a just transition you know we can't just be like <laughs> let's get rid of petrol let's just take all the lithium and it doesn't matter how we get that yeah. you know we need to be looking at child slavery we need to be looking at um the impacts of colonialism on, on like countries like bolivia countries like democratic republic of congo as you said mm-hmm. um, we can't just be focused on environmentalism we need to to look at it in a, in a caring way as well and make it a, a just change for humanity, for human rights, for decency, um, as well as, as thinking about the climate. Mm. I think the, I know, I know we hadn't discussed this before now, but one thing that comes to mind, especially when you mention colonialism, is I think about sort of um, developing versus developed economies. Um, and in that way that a lot of developed economies, if I've got this right, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but as, as, as I understand it, a lot of developed economies are made by the value of and the general extraction of resources from developing countries or previous colonialized countries. And so I almost sometimes see now where it, it feels like, it feels like that there's a sense that as developed countries are now developed, and I guess they've almost got to the point of industrial revolution um, of, general mature stages of extraction of materials, et cetera, they're building their societies. And so now that they sort of are waking up or you know, becoming aware of the damage that their companies or their capitalism, for lack of a better word, might be causing, there's maybe more of a sense of, okay, cool, we all need to pull together and not, not stop what we're doing, but certainly look at how we can do this more responsibly or effectively and without harming the environment. But I always sometimes wonder about the developing countries who are kind of hitting that industrial revolution stage of development, who, yes, like whether it's um, countries in sub-Saharan developing Africa or in Southern Asian, Indian subcontinent, et cetera, et cetera, Southeast Asia as well where they are now becoming bigger and bigger players in sort of fossil fuels and extraction of minerals. And I guess I kind of wonder about the balance of people calling foul on something like that, where normally the countries that are calling it are the societies that have already, they've already got the joy out of, you know, extracting what materials they needed. And I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying that they shouldn't then stand for environmental justice or, for lack of a better term, toning it down a bit in terms of the way they're extracting materials and at the rate they're doing it. But I do always wonder about that balance of saying that, you know, rightly or wrongly, truthfully or not, balance versus, well, these other societies that 
have as many rights as any other to advance in this way um, having pressure put on them maybe by larger companies that do fund them in other ways with soft power kind of going okay well you need to like slow down your extraction possibly with selfish gains so other countries can get in or just for the sake of the environment purely you know assuming everyone's got good honest intentions I guess do you have any thoughts to how this can kind of be balanced out in the sense that developing and developed nations will still need rare earth materials just as capitalism and consumerism drives those societies like do you think that it's just everyone needs to just kind of find ways around using rare earth materials or do they need to I mean I guess that's in some ways part of it finding more sustainable materials anyway um but do you think that we're likely to just expect the problems to increase as developing countries um extract more materials and sort of build their economies that way like, except that's quite a lot yeah. but it's just something, yeah. something out of my head there yeah at, at I think at the core, it, it's not fair for Britain to have spent the last 300 years pouring out coal smoke and um, extracting materials from everywhere and, and using them to to grow our economy and to, you know, as, as the British Empire did, take over and enslave a quarter of the world, you know? Mm -hmm. we've, we've built our country on that. Um, and now we're the ones that are trying to lead the claims to say other countries can't do that because it's going to ruin the climate when it's, mm -hmm. it's, our, it's our country and countries like ours that have put us in the situation in the first place. Mm. So it's a difficult one, you know, because people need to develop. We need to, we need to spread better healthcare across the world. We need to spread better sanitation for, for water and, and hygiene and toilets. Mm across the world um, people, you know, visiting different parts of the world is a, a privilege. Like yeah, getting absolutely. on a plane and going somewhere is yeah. a very, very rare thing for a lot of the world, but it's, it's such an important part of, of kind of expanding your mind, maybe seeing more parts yeah. of the world, yeah. and getting a more rounded view of, of humanity, mm -hmm. um, but there's, there was an article on this by by George Monboy um, in the Guardian a few, few I think a few months ago. Sure, yeah, I can try to link to it. Yeah, so I'll try and send it to you after this. But um, basically, he was saying, you know, some people are blaming the climate crisis on overpopulation, um, mm -hmm. and but it really isn't. It's not at all. Um, we, we do have enough resources to spread around everyone. It's just that a small percentage of the world's population, i.e. us, um, mm -hmm. are living on massive amounts of resources, massively more than many people um, in other countries mm. who, who are living less developed lives. So it is very difficult. You know, we, we can't ignore the climate crisis. We can't say Taking more materials and putting more emissions out is not going to cause damage um, and it's going to cause more damage to you know areas around the equator um, where these mm. a lot of these developing countries are so it's, it's almost a catch-22 situation of mm -hmm. they still need to develop um, but 
the way that we currently know how to develop yeah. is going to cause more environmental damage to those regions. So, yeah, we need to find new ways of, of still maintaining that development, still giving more dignity and respect to humanity as a whole without, without continuing to destroy the environment at the rate that we are. Mm, cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah it's, it's something I've, I've thought a fair amount on because I have seen a bit more of that rhetoric going around of like, oh, we all just need to stop and like, well, does it, does it really work like that? Is that, does that really work? But that's fair enough. Okay, so now talking about the politics and the government itself, I mean, we are in Britain, this is where we both live and both grew up. So what, what would you say you know, governments here have typically been have typically done or have been doing um, in order to combat climate change. You said Britain were trying to be one of the leaders in that space. So I guess at a government level, what do you think has been happening there? Where yeah, do you sure. see it? Uh -huh. So I wanted to, to look into kind of three reasons that I've picked out for, for why politics and environment are so intertwined in the last 10 years. Um, and the, the main reason is because it's becoming too big and pressing to ignore anymore. Mm. Um, like you said, we're seeing more and bigger fires in the Amazon, Australia, the US. I mean, even even Siberia has had massive wildfires this year, mm. and we're starting to see kind of the first climate refugees. Um, yeah, which which is people forced to leave their homes because of climate change. You know, there's a whole Fijian village had to move uh, inland. Hundreds mm. of Australians have lost their homes in wildfires, yeah. and there's. Even in the UK, there's a Welsh village um, where the tide is rising, but no mm. one can sell their houses and move because the government is refusing to reinforce the tidal barrier. So soon the sea will yeah. take the homes and there's nothing they can do to escape it. Yeah. And even looking at kind of COVID-19, it's linked to environmental degradation and they traced its origins back to a food market where they sold wild animals, namely um, pangolins in this case. Yeah, destroyed. Yeah, as we destroy more wildlands and humans live closer and closer to these animals that we rarely see, mm -hmm. there's going to be more incidences where disease jumps the host. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the first reason why climate change and politics has become so entwined in the last 10 years. It's, it's too big and it's too close to ignore now. Yeah. Um, another reason is that the longer you live, the more climate change is going to impact your life. Of course. So in the last... 10 years, millions of young people who, who the, including us two, whom mm -hmm. the majority of their life will be spent dealing with the impacts of climate change have now become eligible to vote. Yeah, so the politicians, so the politicians actually started to care about what they cared about because they have the power to vote now. Mm. Um, and finally, there's, there's lots of other reasons. Like we've talked about like developing countries being more likely to be impacted by climate change and the links between capitalism and colonialism yep. but I think I'll stick to just the three reasons before talking about our current government yep. um, so the final one is that there has been a, a frenzied attack on truth over recent years yep. so politicians yep. generally lie we, we all agree that politicians <laughs> bend the truth and you always have to check what they say mm -hmm. but recently there's been I think a, an attack on truth um, it has its roots in relativism, which is the idea that there's no objective truth and all points of view are valid and that truth is relative to the individual. 
Yeah, you do you. Yeah, but I, I believe that truth is objective. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it, it doesn't matter what I think, out there somewhere, uneditable <laughs> by me, there is truth. Um, and for me, that, that belief stems from both my Christian faith and my belief that Jesus is the, the truth, the way in the life. Yep. Yeah, but also from kind of my scientific background um, of here's the evidence. Um, let's figure out what the truth is. Yeah. But, but what does that have to do with politics? Well, people like Donald Trump, Putin, Nigel Farage, uh, Boris Johnson mm -hmm. have been, and I, I really hope that they are, uh, the culmination of a long battle to undermine truth. You know, do immigrants come and steal all of our jobs and ruin the country? No. Is smoking <laughs> bad for your health? Yes. Does mm -hmm. 5G cause nosebleeds? No. Is climate change real? Yes. But mm -hmm. the opposite of each of these statements has been argued and it has caused real differences in the world because of a rejection of objective truth and empirical evidence. Mm. Like, I'll, I will never forget during the Brexit campaign, um, Michael Gove said, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. And he became our environmental secretary, secretary less than a year <laughs> later after that. In other words, he was saying, stop listening to the evidence, stop listening to people who spend their lives gaining knowledge and experience about a subject, stop thinking, just believe me and what I'm saying right now. I mean... It's just like 1984, where Winston has his, in his hands evidence that a man was alive in that event, but the Ministry of Truth makes him destroy the evidence and believe what Big Brother wants everyone to know. Mm. And there's, now, there's a, oh, sorry, you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, where this really interacts with climate change is, is something called the Tobacco Playlist Playbook. So decades okay. ago, everyone smoked and tobacco companies were really rich because of it. Yeah. And then many scientists found evidence that smoking was bad for your health. And instead of doing the right thing and stopping the production of cigarettes, they, they were driven by capitalism, yep. saying people are worth more smoking 40 a day and dying of lung cancer at 65 than living to 80. Mm. Uh, so the tobacco companies cynically manipulated and distorted the evidence to make it seem like it was inconclusive that smoking was bad for you. And eventually it was largely accepted that smoking was bad for your health, but yep. many people had died and are still dying who didn't have to. And what this tobacco playbook did was create a distrust in science and scientists. And it created a public cynicism for accepting scientific evidence. Yes. Then in, in 1981, companies like Exxon, kind of big oil companies, were, hi were, hiring, yeah, were hiring scientists who were telling them that continuing to burn fossil fuels would have a detrimental impact on human life and the climate mm -hmm. back in 1981. So instead of finding ways to stop burning fossil fuels and telling everyone why, they used the tobacco playbook. They said, scientific evidence is inconclusive and we don't really know that human activities are affecting the global climate. And yeah. who knows, if it is happening, it might even be good for us. So until we believe it, we'll continue the way we are. Yeah. And then they continued digging up fossil fuels and selling it because capitalism says this carbon is worth more in the atmosphere, changing the climate, than it is in the ground where it's been for the whole of human history. And that was 40 mm. years ago. And we're still consistently having heads of state being asked whether they believe in climate change instead of being asked <laughs> if they what understand it, it. Yeah. Yeah, or what they're doing about it. So pretty much 
all environmental scientists, except for those who are paid by fossil fuel companies, agree that human activity is changing the climate and that it's going to be detrimental to your way of life. And yet reporters still give Donald Trump and others like him the choice of whether it exists or not in their first question. Mm, it's interesting talking about the sort of the state of relativism and lack of trust in experts because I, I think I mean of course social media cannot be the the, the epicenter of truth in the world but I, what I do rate it for is it's even even if flawed and with nuances here is quite a good way at least at a no uh what's the word i'm looking for uh, a hot take a screenshot or a cross-section of society at a given time or the cross-section of society within your social influence since you essentially in social media see what you create and um, what you curate sorry but seeing people openly say like we've we've got we've got people that have dedicated their lives long or short to things like climate change um, take Greta Thunberg, for example, who's obviously a massive example to be known by now. But you, 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 as many people as you see agree with what she's doing, what she's saying online about climate change and calling it governments to do more, you also see people who are a bit like, not, not even really just kind of um, questioning her opinion because she's a young girl, but also just the general, like, I, 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 can, I can see the rhetoric of people not liking to be told how they should live their lives, which I think is a more general statement, not just applying to um, yeah. the environment. You see it in all sorts of things. And I, I do accept that there is a place where, especially in something like social media or where it's celebrities or whatever, like, you know, the the lifestyle and experiences of a certain few, I can understand taking it with a pinch of salt when they try to bring that across, like that should be the way that the, the many live, the majority live. However, on the flip side, as you said, there are people that, as I said, devote, devote their lives long and short to their causes and are very knowledgeable in their fields. And so like, I can understand maybe the like being tired of experts, but it's just, for me, it's the question about who fills the vacuum then. Like, mm -hmm. even, even if, if people accept that they don't like being told what to do by people who claim to know more than them about a subject they know little about. But I don't know if, I've not known anyone to come up with a satisfactory answer for okay, well, if it's not them, then who? I mean, because you take Michael Gove. Um, now, I, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know his experience in environmental studies or anything like that. But if he himself, as you said, he says, like, you know, why everyone's getting tired of experts. And then, you know, most cabinet office roles are essentially the public office of someone being an expert. I agree, you wouldn't, like, when Jeremy Hunt was the health secretary, like, You'd like to think, well, he should know about what's happening with the health systems here in the UK, how that works. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I'm just saying that yeah. he's that's have, his office role. Yeah. That's what you'd expect. Yeah, at least have people under him telling him the facts so mm -hmm. he can be the public figure of it. Yeah, that's interesting. So speaking of um, our, how would you rate our government now then, for instance? What, what do you what do you think is happening there? Yeah. Um, so our government is is a right-wing government, it's conservative. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's been a real divide in the last 10 years of between the right-wing, which seems to care less about the climate, and left-wing, which seems to care more about the climate and accept the science of climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rooted in the three ideas I mentioned. So the right-wing 
generally follow a more extreme version of capitalism. Yeah. So they're more the free market. Less, so that yeah, they're less inclined to think about trees and whales in terms of terms of worth other than monetary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the right wing is generally voted for by older people, and partially because older people are generally richer. But the the main point is that politicians on the right care less about what young people say because they're less likely to get their votes. And young people generally care more about climate change. And then the third reason, so the right wing, because of capitalism and generally catering to older voters, have utilized relativism in recent years to take power. This mm-hmm. can be seen crystal clear in the rise of Donald Trump mm-hmm. and is, is kind of the go-to stance for Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Matt Hancock, and, and Dominic Cummings, who is actually, he seems to be leaving the government today. Yeah, I think I heard that overnight. That's yep. interesting. I'll that's, that's a, that would be a big change. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Conservative government at the moment seemed to be, maybe it's changed today, um, <laughs> which puts all of my preparation out the window. Um, but they seem to be building on the Brexit misinformation campaign that got them into power and just kind of doing more stuff like that. Hmm. So you asked, what, what are they doing about climate change at the moment? Yeah. Um, Boris Johnson, he likes to make good noises. And he likes to say big numbers about all the work that they're doing, but it's not all that it seems. Um, They launched a a £27 billion road building scheme just before lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, But more roads equals more traffic, which equals more emissions. And uh, they've, this is uh, kind of sticking in transport. They've got the HS2 railway line that they want to build. Everything I hear about HS2, (laughs) it's just like, how many months late is it? How many millions over budget is it? Or billions if it's even that high? I don't know. Yeah, go it's on, but yes. Manchester. It's not going to come to Scotland. No. Um, but there was um, there was one bit that went through a site of some of the only ancient woodlands left in England. And uh, one of the government's proposed solutions was to just dig up the ancient woodland and plant it all somewhere else. Um, <laughs> and then still on transport, they've announced that they want to ban diesel and petrol vehicles. Um, by 2035, or the sale of them at least. Yeah. But, that's, which is great, and it's what we need to do, but they're they're doing almost nothing to implement the electric charging or hydrogen refueling yeah. network that we actually need to get rid of internal combustion engines. Mm. Um, other things, like Boris Johnson has declared himself an evangelist for carbon capture and storage technology, um, but it was the Conservatives that removed the one billion research funding that was going towards it and stop the project. So contradictory um, statements versus action really. Yeah. Um, right. So during the kind of where we get to see our political parties and we hope the clearest light is or compare them the most is during elections. And mm-hmm. so we had one last December. It doesn't feel like a year ago, but there we go. Um, and Channel 4 held the first ever leaders climate debate. Um, but it was the right wing, so the Conservative Party and UKIP, uh, those were the two parties that didn't even show up to take part in this climate debate. Yeah. And during the same election, the Conservative Manifesto mentioned climate only 10 times, where Labour and Lib Dem had 59 times each, and the SNP had uh, 33 times to mention climate in their, their mm-hmm. manifesto. So that shows the, real, the really clear divide between left and right, especially in our country. Right. Okay. It's not just Boris Johnson. The no, first thing that no. Theresa May did as Prime Minister was get rid of the Department for Climate Change. 
and she just shoved it into rural mm -hmm. affairs. Um, we've had over the last 10 years, we've had seven different environmental ministers. Mm -hmm. And I know I know a lot's happened. We've had two referendums and five elections yeah. and one pandemic. Um, <laughs> but there's just no consistency in the role. Yeah, so the vision's not being carried from office to office. Yeah, and, and Brexit's a massive thing as well, because a lot of our environmental legislation was tied up in EU legislation. Mm. Um, and the Conservatives were supposed to, to fix this with the Environment Bill. But it's, it's not been mentioned in Parliament for over 200 days now. And if we pass the transition date without this bill being put through, yep. there will be nobody in the UK that you can legally go to to try and protect the environment. Wow. And then, yes, yeah, so we're, we're in November 2020 now. Um, and yep. we were supposed to have COP26 was going to be this month, right this week, yeah. in the city, in Glasgow. Um, but obviously, because of the, the pandemic, it's been pushed back to next year, which I think is actually a great thing for our government because they were really unprepared for it. Um, back in February, before lockdown even happened, um, less than three months since he'd been prime minister, Boris Johnson sacked Theresa Villers, the environment minister. He also sacked Claire O'Neill, who was going to be the president for the COP. So she was mm -hmm. in charge of, of making it a success. And she'd, she'd been really involved in the last COP as well in Madrid. Yeah. And to give you an idea of the, the lack of preparation that the government had, in France for 2015, so this is the Paris Agreement, yeah. they had over 200 diplomats working on COP for years. Boris Johnson mm -hmm. had just over 100 by then. And 10 months before, um, and when he was, that was 10 months before the COP was meant to happen. And when he was mm -hmm. foreign secretary, he fired most of the UK's overseas climate change envoys. envoys. Um, so when he fired the environment minister and the COP president, we were like, what's going on? Yeah, how just are, amidst uh, a clearing out of that department generally. Yeah, how are they ever going to get ready for this? And the, But um, guess who he replaced them by? Who Who is now running COP? Do you know? Oh gosh, mm, no, I don't. Okay, so just keep in mind that this is uh, the biggest summit the UK has ever hosted. It is the, the most change, important yeah. climate change meeting we're probably ever going to have because this is the time that we need to make the difference before the emissions go over. Mm. Um, this historic meeting, and he chose um, Alok Sharma, who is the business secretary. Yeah, the name so, is well. So to give you. That, that picture of the government yeah, yeah, yeah. saying it's not about the environment, yeah, it's, it's about, about business, business. I think it's a very clear look into how the Conservatives view climate change. So I have very little faith in our current <laughs> government making decisive and the rapid steps that we actually need to make the UK the climate leader it claims to be. Um, mm. I mean, it, it even took the Labour Party to force them to declare the climate emergency. Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're talking we're talking of COP and talking of COP in Glasgow, but I guess I hear I hear COP, which if you can take a second once I finish to just explain what that actually means, because I feel like I keep, I throw the term around and give it a COP, COP, I'm like, never yeah. actually asked what that meant. But it, whilst I finish, I mean, we've obviously not that long ago had the Paris Accords of, I, I don't know whether to call it fame or infamy at this point. I mean, like, this is what I want to pick your brain about. Of course, the United States have, Backed out, they're not about to come back in, but caused a bit of an uproar when they were leaving. Yes, Joe Biden is 
has definitely said, look, we're almost on the first day of office, I'm going to come back into this. But mm -hmm. it seems like the noise is being made by certain EU leaders um, and environmental <laughs> policists is that, you know, just them coming back to the table doesn't solve everything. So what would you what would you say, how do you rate the Paris Accords? Do you think it's, I remember when it was agreed, you know, with the sheer number of countries that signed on, people were hailing this as like the, you know, the big, the big change, the silver bullet that we've all been looking for, but then also the, the like, I think it's 2050 by the time they want most of these things to come into effect, and some also say then, well, that's too long, what's even the point? So how do you sit on it? Yeah, so yeah, something we, we might have missed with all that happened in the USA over the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, it was the day after the election, 4th of November, that they left the Paris Agreement. Yep. Um, and yeah, like you said, Joe Biden's come now president-elect and he says he'll come straight back into it, which is which is good. Um, so what it is, so the, the Paris Agreement and is it was the outcome of COP21, I think, mm -hmm. I think it was the number. So COP is Conference of Parties yep. and it is the big meeting uh, that the UN holds once a year um, and it brings together all of its member states and tries to deal with climate change. How sure. can we deal with this um, as a global community? Um, the, the important ones are every five years. That's where they expect the heads of state to go to as well and sure. to, okay. to sign big targets for- Yeah, because you ever really hear about the other ones. The one you said that happened last year in Madrid, first personal order, how did that, yeah. Yeah, so, so last year it was, COP25, it was meant to happen in Chile, but at the last minute it was moved to Madrid. Its mm -hmm. kind of focus was on the oceans. Um, but every five years, there's the big one where they focus on reducing emissions. So 2020, Glasgow was supposed to be the next big one. That's mm -hmm. been moved to 2021. Um, but the last big one was the Paris in 2015. And like I said, it was a result of some amazing French diplomacy where they got 195 UN countries to agree to work together to reduce emissions across the whole globe. Mm. And it set targets for each country to meet. And there were legal ramifications if they didn't meet these targets. So I, I always say, I, I have no idea who's going to enforce these if they don't, if they don't meet them. Like, yeah. who's going to take China and the USA? Like, you, you can't yeah, you know, going to take jail if they break the law, you know? Yeah. Um, so another part of that agreement was every five years, these countries would increase their targets and do more work. So that was right. what was supposed to happen this week in Glasgow, was all the countries were meant to come together and say, we're going to do even more. Mm -hmm. So as, it, as I said before, Boris Johnson was kind of setting it up to be a big failure, but coronavirus postponing it has, has given us a second chance. Sure. Nice. Um, yeah, like this decade was supposed to be a decade of climate action. Um, but so far we had the US remove itself from the Paris Agreement and we've had a global pandemic. Um, but the reason- 2020 is the year that keeps on giving, don't we? It's <laughs> Christmas every day. Yeah. The, the reason that the USA matters is because they're a country of 300 million people mm -hmm. and they are the largest per capita polluter on the globe. Right. So over, over his four years in, in power. Trump rolled back 160 significant environmental regulations. He defunded the solar energy sector. He tried to get coal back up and running. Um, but 
obviously if it failed because it's it's not the Victorian ages. We're not going around saying, please, sir, can I, I'd like some more. You know, <laughs> there, there's now 5,000 fewer coal-related jobs in the US than 2016. Mm. But, but he was able to reduce these environmental regulations and did increase fracking. Um, but believe it or not, renewable energy is a, actually a good idea. And the solar sector in the USA continued to grow despite its best effort, efforts. And onshore wind, as I mentioned at the start, is the cheapest way to produce electricity. Mm. So the reason the Paris Agreement, I think, was a great thing was because we had all these countries signing up to reduce their emissions. Yep. The reason that it, it was shaking and was maybe looked at on, on as a bad thing was well, sometimes it didn't go far enough. You know, it's it's a lot to make that many countries agree on everything. Yeah, so you need to kind of go in the middle. You can't go too extreme. Um, and it's trying to drag them away from fossil fuels. Mm. So there's always a compromise there. Um, but it is, I think it's a really great thing that Joe Biden is saying that he's going to come back into this. You know, it seems like Trump was systematically removing any reference to climate change from the federal government. Um, I suppose that the, the idea that everything we do creates emissions that lead to wildfires and landslides and food shortages and pandemics and loads of other things that impact everyone in the world, I think that detracted from Trump's narrative to just look after America and we'll be okay. And I think yeah, yeah. If, if anyone embodied the capitalist MO of you're only <laughs> worth what you can make me, it's Trump. So. It makes sense yeah. that ignores the long-term impacts for the short-term economic benefit. Um, and there's there's a perception that more environmental protection means less profit. So mm. agreeing to to not acting to stop climate change um, seems to be what he would go for. And it's, it seems to be ingrained as well in so many in the right wing. And I, I'm not saying that the left is perfect. I mean, no, all, it can't be. All, all political parties have tended to favour economics over the environment when they're in power. Mm -hmm. But it is is markedly more extreme when the party's on the right. right. So, yeah, going back to your question again about the Paris Agreement, um, as I said at the start, 71% of emissions come from 100 businesses. Yep. And the two ways we can control them is we can change our entire lives and um, stop, stop consuming their products, yeah. uh, which, is, which is quite difficult. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of people to, to get to do that. Or governments can impose regulations. Yeah. So them signing up to the Paris Agreement, I think, was really important um, because they can actually impact these, these companies from above. And mm, it's our sure. job to keep our Open governments pressure. accountable for that. Right. Um, on their, their failure, because the US left, um, it's not true. Even though Joe Biden's coming back in um, this month before the, the election, China decided to up their emission targets anyway, despite oh, the conference okay. being postponed. President mm -hmm. Xi said that they would try and be carbon neutral by 2060, um, okay. where before they didn't have a date. So it seemed, yeah. it, al it almost seemed like we didn't need the USA to be in. But um, now that Joe Biden's coming in, it looks, and he he's big on electric vehicles, big on zero emission public transport, big on community movements, um, and join the rejoin the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. He wants US energy to be net zero by 2035, and he wants the whole country to be net zero by 2050. 
So that means that if, if that happens, then China, the US, the EU, Japan and South Korea, who make up two thirds of the world economy yeah. and over 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions, it means that they will have committed to be net zero by the middle of the century. And I know that this, uh, I think this probably will not keep us below the 1.5 degree warming that the Paris yeah. Agreement asks for, but it will probably avoid the two or three degrees warming, which would be catastrophic for a much larger part of the population. So mm. I think in that way, we need to do something. Yeah. And the Paris Agreement is a, a really impressive starting point to do that. It's been right. over the last four years by Trump, but hopefully it's back. That's also good. So just to sort of start bringing this to a close, so we've we've spent, you know, the last 40, 50 minutes or so talking through a lot of, I guess, quite high level in terms of responsibility. It's been focused on governmental and then intergovernmental um, policies and statistics. So let's, let's bring this down to what we actually do as individuals here on Earth. Okay, so let's let's play what i would do if i was the prime minister game if you had <laughs> if you if you had the chance to go and bring into law two policies two bills um for the home shall we say or for your locale what 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 would you say maybe it's a good place to start what are what are good solid ways especially you know this winter where we're going to be in our homes going to be blasting the heating likely yeah. Um, you know, what do you think between COVID and winter over the next few months we can be looking to do and beyond if we've got it um, to help combat climate change in our own bubbles and our own lives? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting you said play the, the prime minister game because <laughs> I've recently been thinking about what um, an authoritarian environmental government would look like. Gosh. So a government that cared about the environment above everything else. Mm. With like they would just close all the polluting businesses. Um, <laughs> you would ban cars. You know. Oh gosh. Um, they would. Oh, they may, So this is this might be an unpopular opinion. Okay. Um, might be the most unpopular thing I say today. <laughs> um, but pets. So pets like dogs and cats are yes. really bad for the environment. Oh, oh my god. They like they consume twenty percent of the world's meat and fish. And we all know how much resources it takes to produce meat and fish become from the vegetarian vegan debate. Yeah. Um, and it's estimated that there are 179 million dogs and cats and as pets in the US alone. Mm. Um, so two German shepherds can have greater resource use than the average Bangladeshi person. Okay. And they lead to more carbon emissions each year than four, four by four cars. Mm -hmm. So what? my personal opinion is, unless it's a working dog or like a mouser, <laughs> we should just get rid of all no, the cats no and dogs oh um, my gosh. for the environment. And it, also, mm. we recently had firework night, bonfire night. Yes. <laughs> like, how can we live in a society that cares about climate change, and yet twice a year on the 5th of November and the 1st of January, we launch millions of tons of gunpowder into the sky just above <laughs> our heads and every the day after it's always cloudy yeah and everyone's like oh i wonder why it's cloudy it was because you've polluted massively <laughs> so, so anyway thinking about being prime minister and yeah if we had an authoritarian environmental government i think it would be interesting yeah. but but you asked me uh, more about the home and more about 
individuals. Yeah, yeah. Well, the pets are there. I can, I can hear the dislikes <laughs> and moaning wails and barking of dogs from afar. But yeah. in the home, where, where, would you, where would you put this? Yeah, so, so winter is the season of, of darkness and cold. So we end up using way more energy in our houses than in the summer. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be even more pronounced this year because everyone is sitting at home doing their yeah. work as well because of the COVID-19. So the, the first step that I would say is decarbonize your energy. Stop giving money to fossil fuel companies. Look at the companies that can provide you with zero emission electricity. Um, and if you need gas in your house, go for carbon neutral gas. Mm. So zero right, emissions electricity. Companies or anything you can recommend where people can go find that? Yeah, so there's there's lots of them. So even just, just go online and type in 100% renewable energy and providers will come up. Um, probably the best known one is Bulb. Yeah, I heard of them. ULB. Um, but there's loads of others. And if you, there's another debate here, but if you don't mind nuclear energy, which mm -hmm. is zero emission, but not clean, yeah. um, then EDF are the biggest zero emission energy providers in the UK. Right. Um, if, you, if your house has gas and you don't want to convert your hob, then you can also find providers that give carbon neutral gas. So carbon neutral is, it's an accounting exercise, which calculates how many grams or tons of carbon dioxide your gas use emits, and then it funds projects that prevent or remove the equivalent amount of carbon from the atmosphere. So it isn't perfect, but it is better than nothing. Sure. And then once you've done that, you know that every time you make dinner, every time you turn your heating on or plug in your phone or your laptop, then it isn't adding to climate change. And then nice. I think like a second one I'll go for mm -hmm. is I'm going to go down the, the overindulgent Christmas dinner route. Oh, gosh. So right. reduce your food waste. Yeah, of course. The Scottish government's been big on it this year about food waste going to landfill and mm. contributing to emissions. Um, whereas when you eat it, it gets turned into energy and, you know, part of your hand and, yeah. and sewage. And sewage is treated properly yeah. um, to reduce the environmental toll. Um, a great way to do this, you could follow someone on Instagram like Less Waste Laura. Mm -hmm. um, she has lots of tips for living lower waste life. But focus on your food in wintertime. Um, especially around Christmas, you know, plan your meals, know what you want to cook, when you want to cook it, exactly how much food you need to prepare it, freeze and store what you don't eat and, and eat it later. Mm -hmm. I think we're less likely to have the big family dinner get together this year. So <laughs> make sure that your smaller dinner is the right size for you and, and don't make too much. Mm. Um, and always, always try and buy stuff with less packaging at the start when you're in the shop. I think I'm going to I'm going to sneak a third one in oh, okay. just quickly and say to everyone to stop using Google. Don't use Firefox or Safari or Internet Explorer if you're, if you're one of those weird people that use Internet Explorer. Yeah, go on your browser and make Ecosia. E-C-O-S-I-A. Make Ecosia your default browser. Um, it works like Google, except the first two or three things that come up on your search are adverts related <laughs> to your search. Uh, you can ignore them. I, I don't even <laughs> see them anymore. However, they use the money from those adverts to plant trees all over the world. Um, and they've planted over 113 million trees from searches. Um, mm. So it's a really easy way to reduce your climate impact by, by something you do every day. Yeah, and getting tips for free on this podcast. Yeah, I, I would I'd probably add, because I'm, I'm aware this is probably quite a long podcast at this point, but I'm sure it's worth it. Um, I would probably add secondary recipes. I, I think when you were talking about Christmas dinner, I think my... 
uh, dad, who is my previous guest, he is like in our house. He's he's known for the sort of Boxing Day turkey soup. I don't, I don't yep. like. It's just always. You don't, I don't even think about what happens to the turkey after Christmas. I know my dad's probably stored the bones somewhere and there will be a soup that will magically appear by the end of Boxing Day, which will last for days and it's such a good time. So that can be one, knowing what you'll do with leftovers or, you know, sec secondary parts of, you know, the animal or the food that you've prepped before. Um, yeah, that might be a way. Anyway, um, we, we've gone through, we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast and it's been such good fun. So thank you for coming on, Daniel. You're welcome. And yeah, so this has been Daniel Masenga Grant in conversation with your host, Nathan Epimolu, here on the podcast. I hope you've unearthed a little more of life and people have been it today. Feel free to come find us and share your thoughts and, I don't know, your dog pics that you're now very, very sad that Daniel's basically said get rid of. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the Facebook page at On Earth Podcast and share your thoughts with me there. And if you've got a story or background you'd like to share, please drop us a message and remember we're all somebody's neighbour. I'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Well, 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 thank you for tuning in with me today. Thank you for giving up your time and your attention to this podcast and I really hope you've got something useful out of it. Stick around as next time we'll be looking at something a little bit more festive as we approach the Christmas and New Year. And just a quick announcement that we're also available on Apple Podcasts now in addition to Spotify, Google Podcasts, I think Pocket Cast as well, wherever you listen to your podcasts, I hope. So please go and find us uh, wherever you listen, give us some love. Uh, come and find us on the Facebook page as well at Honoured Podcast and show some love there too and let me know what you want to hear next. Uh, looking forward to taking this into the festive period and then the new year with you all. So much love from me and I will talk to you next time.